Hello, and welcome to Macro Minutes. During each episode, we'll be joined by RBC Capital Markets experts to provide high-conviction insights on the latest developments in financial markets and the global economy. Please listen to the end of this recording for important disclosures. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the January 23rd edition of Macro Minutes, entitled A Delicate Balance, being recorded at 10.15 a.m. Eastern. I'm your host, Simon Dealey. Focus continues on the timing and depth of central bank rate cuts as they try to engineer soft landings for economies across the globe. Central bank balance sheets and QTN timing in different jurisdictions has become increasingly topical as well. And how do equity markets navigate this uncertain environment? As usual, we have a strong slate of RBC analysts to provide their insights on these topics and more. I will kick off on the January 24th BOC meeting and why we expect an early end to QT north of the border. Isaac Brook will give updated views on the Fed balance sheet, and Michael Reed will discuss the economic backdrop in the U.S. Peter Schaffer opines on developments in Europe, and Lori Calvacina will tell us what it all means for equity markets. So kicking off with Canada, it's clear that it is a clear hold for the BOC on Wednesday with stable messaging likely, but a higher risk of a hawkish than dovish tilt given data in the intermediate period. This has included firmer core inflation measures last week, and only a slow normalization of corporate pricing behavior and inflation and wage expectations in the Business Outlook Survey. The NPR is likely to show lower headline inflation and growth projections, with the former driven by lower oil price assumptions. Messaging should continue to emphasize that it is too early to be discussing rate cuts. We do see a tail risk that an end to QT will be announced this week, but think around the next meeting on March 6 is more likely. An important development in Canada to start 2024 was a further rise in CORA, the rate the BOC targets with its policy rate. It is set at five basis points above target for much of January, prompting the BOC to add one-day liquidity through overnight repo operations on most days. The higher CORA settings have come alongside continued reductions in links balances. This is the BOC's equivalent of the Fed's reserves, and that, that has been due to GOC bonds maturing off of the asset side of the BOC's balance sheet. So links balances went from $196 billion at the end of 2022 to $121 billion at the end of 2023 and are currently at $112 billion. The rise in core and reaction of the BOC suggests to us that QT will not continue for much longer. Previous BOC guidance saw $20 to $60 billion as a steady state level for links balances, while our longstanding call has been for around $100 billion. What we think will ultimately prompt action will be a large maturity on April 1st. The bank holds $23 billion that is maturing on that day. After about $10 billion combined matures on February 1st and March 1st. We think the reduction in links balances in the lead-up to April 1st is too pronounced to allow for fully passive QT to continue and expect replacement assets to be added, so bonds, bills, as well as term repos, in the lead-up to that date. Uh, so March meeting announcement, again, seems like the most likely timing to us. January meeting is likely too early for announcement, though it is a risk, but we will be watching the press conference closely for any hints or guidance on the balance sheet given the above developments. When QT is ended, we think the BOC will emphasize that it is not a signal of pending rate cuts, with considerations for the latter more on macro developments than the market functioning and liquidity considerations discussed above for the end of QT. As well, they will likely stress that it is a return to normal balance sheet operations and not QE. Now we'll shift south of the border to Isaac Brook on the Fed. Just like our Canadian counterparts, we've been thinking a lot about QT over the past few weeks. And the QT discussion down here was prompted by the release of the December FOMC minutes, followed by some Fed speak on the topic. And luckily, just by happenstance, the five-year lag 
that the FOMC releases meeting transcripts on means that all the materials from 2018 were publicly released just a few weeks ago. Those releases contain lots of new info on how the Fed was monitoring their first QT program, including you know, metrics they were monitoring to assess whether reserves were becoming scarce, including various funding rates and how they were trading relative to the Fed's administered rates, the composition of borrowers in the federal funds market, and banks' use of daylight overdrafts. Looking at how those metrics are faring today, most are nowhere near the levels they were at when the Fed actively began debating a QT1 taper, and most have barely shifted since QT2 started all the way back in June of 2022. Also notably, while repo pressures triggered the QT discussion amongst Fed officials, repo markets had persistent upward pressure and notable volatility throughout much of QT1, suggesting the Fed's tolerance for more volatility on that front before they actively consider ending the current QT program. So overall, based on the indicators the Fed is likely monitoring and recent comments from Fed officials, it's hard to justify calls that QT will end soon. The recent pull forward of QT end expectations just seem wrong given current market conditions. And even when the Fed does taper, we think that taper announcement will not include an end date, meaning QT could run even longer than many were envisioning ahead of the increased focus so far in 2024. So we've adjusted our, our call for QT. We're shifting back the start from May to July, but then more importantly, we're also envisioning a longer runoff at a lower pace post taper. We think based on current funding metrics, we won't see conditions approaching a stopping point until sometime in the first half of 2025. And I think you know this swing in market expectations from not thinking about QT to QT ending in the near term is just another example of a common theme of the past few years that when a narrative begins to shift, price action around those narratives swings too far and too fast. The broader example in recent weeks was the pull forward of near-term cut pricing. And it's taken a combination of time, data, Fed speak, and developments abroad to push those cuts back. But in relation to QT, given that data related to QT is not nearly as transparent as economic data, it may come down to just Fed speak being the driver of what might push QT expectations back to where we think is more fundamentally justified. And like what's currently happening with near-term cut pricing, some of the QT-related price action, like the partial retracement and so for Fed's basis, may have to unwind as it becomes increasingly clear that QT may still continue on for a while. Powell is likely to signal as much next week at the FOMC meeting, although, like with the cut pricing narrative, there's plenty of room for markets to misinterpret his comments. That could mean price action in front-end basis and swap spreads could still be quite choppy over the next few months if markets and the Fed's view on QT remains at odds. Great. Thank you very much, Isaac. Very insightful. Now over to Michael. You know, this week we are looking at the final quarter of 2023 for GDP growth. And, you know, their uh, growth continues to surprise to the upside. Uh, we are looking for consensus growth around 2%, um, really driven by the consumer. Um, but looking ahead into 2024, um, that's where we see some weakness uh, ahead. I'm really looking for a downshift in growth. Looking back at 2023, a lot of the consumption was driven by the older demographic. Uh, in looking at consumption patterns, um, the 65 plus cohort was largely responsible for the growth in things like electronics and appliances, uh, as well as restaurant spending and healthcare and personal care spending. On the flip side, uh, the, the younger cohorts 
where larger spenders on things like furniture, building materials, and sporting and hobby equipment, um, those three sectors were among the most sluggish uh, in terms of consumption. So there, uh, I note, you know, given the, the theme here is a delicate balance, uh, the growth prospects for 2024 are largely hinged on uh, this, this older cohort continuing uh, to spend on those, those items, as well as the uh, ability for those younger cohorts to increase their consumption uh, that relates to household formation. Where we see the risk uh, for job losses, it continues to be in those consumer-related sectors. So when you look at wholesale trade, retail trade, and non-durable manufacturing, uh, we do see their margins coming under pressure here um, at the start of 2024, and that would put around a million jobs at risk, pushing up the unemployment rate to around 4.5% by mid-year. Now, where that balance could be tipped to the downside in terms of the unemployment rate is uh, within leisure and hospitality. They still have the ability to absorb some of those workers uh, and that could help keep the impact on the unemployment rate rather muted if they are able to absorb those workers that are shed from retail and wholesale trade, for example. However, if you do see a meaningful pullback, especially among spending uh, from that 65 plus cohort with regards to leisure and hospitality, uh, the risk to the unemployment rate uh, is to the upside. Thinking about some of the headwinds for consumers, uh, we did see a, a strong consumption growth in Q3. Um, there is a bit of a downshift in uh, Q4 as we expect here on Thursday. Um, but again, looking ahead, it, looking at revolving credit as it relates to the ability for consumers to pay back, uh, non-mortgage interest payments continue to be a concern as a percent of disposable personal income that is still near an all-time high at 2.8%. And at some point, um, that debt and that interest needs to be paid. So we do see that pullback really impacting that younger cohort of consumers moving forward here. Still, we are not calling for a recession. We do think that the prospects for growth uh, remain largely driven by that older demographic, as well as the tailwinds that we will continue to see in the CapEx space driven by investments from the CHIPS Act and the Inflation Reduction Act. Great. Thank you, Michael. Peter is up next on Europe. Well, when it comes to Europe, um, until we record the next edition um, of Macro Minutes, we're going to have two very crucial central bank meetings, the ECB and the Bank of England. And in both cases, what will be really interesting to see is how the language will be conducted, particularly when it comes to the ECB, who's going to meet on Thursday this week. We have seen already a bit of a shift in the language by central bank officials, including central bank president Lagarde, who has indicated that interest rate cuts could be coming in, uh, towards the summer. Now, in the meantime, however, what we've also seen is the data releases have been slightly stronger. And of course, what the central banks have also done, walking a bit of a tightrope, I would say, is pushing back against early rate cuts. And I think that's really going to be the key. Will we be seeing the same kind of thing where they're pushing back against the March, April implied rate cuts, but allowing the possibility of rate cuts later in the year to stand? That's the most likely outcome. And how will the market take it? Because when you look at it, we still have around about 130 basis points priced in terms of rate cuts 
starting much earlier than that um, summer indication that we've already seen. We do think, and I'll come back to that in a second, that the, that the market will have to probably price out more and fair value, we think, is round about 80 to 90 basis points implied for this year rather than the 130. Now, turning to the Bank of England, the situation is even more tricky. First of all, when you look to the Bank of England meeting in December, what we've seen is still three members who have voted for rate hikes. So that's one of the first indications whether or not something is changing in the central bank. Secondly, in contrast to the Fed or the ECB, Bank of England members have been relatively quiet. And they have not, when, they, when they've spoken, embraced the idea of rate cuts earlier or later. So they've been pushing back against that theme by simply saying not very much. Now at the next meeting, they will have to speak and we will have to get some kind of an indication. And the question really is whether they're going to embrace the idea, at least, that rate cuts could be coming as well. This is also interesting against the backdrop of how we've been pricing the bank, because whilst the market has been pricing um, rate cuts for the Bank of England as well, we have priced much less than in case for the Fed or in case for the ECB, which particularly in comparison to the ECB, we think is a bit curious, given that the Bank of England tends to be a bit more nimble. Last but not least, in terms of the UK, we've also seen data releases coming out on the strong side, particularly as it pertains to inflation. The latest inflation print was much stronger than expected. So these are really the key things to watch out for for these central bank meetings. Now, finally, what do we expect for the market? As I was alluding to earlier, we've already priced out some of the rate cut fantasies, particularly the early ones. And we think there is more to come, particularly if both of them push back against these early rate cut implications that the market has already priced. Tenure bonds currently trading a little bit north of 230. We think there is a little bit more room for the upside. 250 seems to be a reasonable target. And we reckon that over the next two, three weeks, we could get there. And we'll take it forward from there. Thanks very much, Peter. We'll finish up with Lori on the equity market. Good morning, everybody. A quick update from me on what we're seeing in the U.S. equity market. Um, I did want to start out with our overall outlook. I believe this is my first appearance on Macro Minutes this year. Um, as far as year-end in the S&P, we're looking for 51.50. And we do take a quantitative approach to our targets. We have the average of five different models. I think it's worth flagging the most bearish one at the moment, just given Mike's comments on GDP. Um, one of the uh, models that we use in our targeting process simply looks at how stocks do in different GDP environments. And typically, 0 to 2%, you see a flat to slightly down U.S. equity market. And of course, real GDP, if you look across the consensus forecast, is expected to be about 1.3% this year and then 1.7% next year. So there's really been this view that we're stuck in this sluggish economic backdrop, even if you're looking for a soft landing and not calling for a recession. Um, from my perspective, and again, I'm an equity strategist, not an economist, but the good news in my seat is that this does feel like a headwind that's dissipating just a little bit. And I've noticed as I've been watching the consensus numbers that the 1.3 we're seeing in place today is actually up from about 1% uh, back in November and was down in the mid-single digits uh, back in the summer. So I'm going to be really, really interested to see how street consensus forecasts shift um, after this next GDP report. 
on the flip side, our most bullish model is 5,400, uh, or pointing to 5,400, and that's our valuation model, which basically forecasts a trailing PE using PCE for inflation, 10-year yields, Fed funds, and real GDP. And the data and the model are really all based going back to the 1960s. So we look at multiple economic cycles for clues on how the PE should behave in this one. And we do continue to think that we're very early on in the post-COVID era of investing, and it's really dangerous just to rely on post-GFC pre-COVID rules. At any rate, this valuation model was very bullish last year. It had been consistently pointing us to 4,700 to 4,800 on the S&P and a PE of over 22 times on a trailing basis. So what's the model saying for this year? It's saying to look for 23.2 if inflation moderates, interest rates come down, and GDP rebounds in the back half of the year and the Fed cuts a little bit, um, which is really all part of the consensus forecast at this point in time. Now, all that sounds pretty good. Near term, we do have a sentiment problem in the U.S., and this is something we've been talking quite a bit about recently. If you look at AAII net bulls um, in the weekly survey that comes out, back in early December, we hit one standard deviation above the long-term average, and the stock market is typically flat over the next three months and up about 6.5% over the next 12 months when you're between the one and two standard deviation mark, and that's based on data going back to the 1980s. Um, the good news from my perspective is we did last week start to see that data point come in a little bit. So the bullishness is easing just a little bit. I had been somewhat afraid we'd go up to the two standard deviation mark where stocks are still down or tend to be down over the next 12 months. So I think bullishness, you know, got a little frothy at the end of the year, enough to generate cause for concern about some near-term pullback in the market, but not enough uh, to really cause us to be concerned that it would derail our constructive view on equities for the year. I would also just add on the institutional side, the CFTC buy side positioning data on a notional basis basis for U.S. equity futures contracts is also sending us a short-term caution signal as well. Uh, positioning in U.S. equity futures has gotten back to the 2018-2020 highs and is above the 2021-2022 highs. So for both institutions and retail, sentiment does look a little bit stretched. Next thing I wanted to touch on very quickly is earnings, which are really ramping up in the U.S. this week. Um, I'm looking for 234 on 224 for the S&P uh, versus a consensus number of about 244 to 245. If you talk to, you know, if you talk to investors, I'd say there's a divide in Europe and the U.S. Um, European investors have been very uh, focused on the lofty project profit margin expectations for expansion that are embedded in consensus forecasts. Um, that's not something I've heard a lot of concern about from U.S. investors, but it is something I've worked about in my own modeling and is really generating, a, you know, kind of a, a below consensus forecast on our model, the fact that we're looking for flattish margins as opposed to, to margin expansion. I think this is really the key thing to look for in the earnings reports that come out this week and next. Is pricing sticking? Are costs coming down? What kind of guidance are companies giving about margins? Um, because I think some concern in the equity community has started to emerge, but it's not fully, you know, sort of felt in U.S. markets yet. And I'll wrap up quickly with some positioning trades. Um, if you think about sort of the positioning in the U.S. equity market, value and small caps staged a fierce comeback and took leadership away from mega cap growth at the end of last year. That really coincided with the peak in 10-year yields that we saw. And as yields retreated, uh, leadership in the market broadened out. The exact opposite has happened so far in January. Mega cap growth is leading again as value and small cap have taken a back seat, at least up until yesterday. Um, and that's really coincided with yields moving up. Um, so we think it's going to be a long year for the rotation trades. We do think that if you look through this on a small cap lens, the trade really seems to be middle innings. And I can see the rationale even beyond the move up in yields for it taking a bit of a pause. Um, but we do look for the leadership to broaden out again later this year. 
What I would tell you on small cap, and I think this is really the important barometer here, uh, the PE is back to average. It's not cheap, but it's not expensive yet either. Small caps still look very cheap versus large. And if we look at positioning data, CFTC small cap futures contracts are back to three-year highs, but not all-time highs. So we actually see more room for the small caps to run ultimately uh, than kind of the bigger cap parts of the market. I would just add on small caps, every meeting I had in November and December, people were bullish on small caps and wanted to talk about them. It's about the most consensus I've seen that trade get um, in my 20 plus years as a strategist. Many of those were spent as well as a small cap strategist. Um, it doesn't. It does make sense to me in light of just the consensus view that developed around the broadening out and the small cap trade in particular that we needed to take a little bit of a breather from it to start the year, but I do expect it to resume down the road. The last comment I'll make is just on the mega cap growth trade, the top 10, top seven names in the market, however you want to slice it. There's still intense investor focus there. Those stocks tools do look extremely expensive and crowded to us, albeit for good reasons. They're having another moment in the sun as interest rates move back up. I do think, though, if we take it back to GDP and some of the comments Mike made and the release that's coming out, um, I think that for small caps value to start leading again, for mega cap growth to really break its dominance in the market, we need to see more improvement in economic forecasts. Typically, when GDP is below trend, growth and mega cap and large cap lead. When GDP is above trend and you've got really a lot of excitement about the cyclical of the U.S. economy, that's when small caps and value tend to shine. We're not there yet. We're making some progress, but there's still a lot of wood to chop. Thank you very much, Lori, and thank you to our listeners. Uh, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.